So let me dive in. Working people do not drain the economy. Working people are the economy. The wealth created by workers, it supports ourselves, our children, and our old. And we do that even though we're not paid the full value of the wealth that we create on the job. In the private sector, the unpaid value that we create on average makes it possible for the average investment in any industry to return a profit. That's called exploitation. And we in the public sector, well, our wages are tied to the much larger surrounding private labor market. And therefore, our wages are also held down because our fellow workers are exploited in the same market. Public sector worker wages are also held down because the capitalists don't wanna pay too much of the wealth they got through exploiting profit out of workers back to us in taxes. The profit created by workers and then taken by capitalists not only supports the working class, it goes on to support the capitalists, their children, and their old. And if it wasn't enough that we're not paid the value of the goods or the services that we create. We then, as workers, have to pay taxes out of the leftovers that we receive as wages. The capitalists pay taxes too, but the money they pay in taxes comes originally from the profits they exploited out of us. Republicans complain that immigrants drain the economy by using welfare, healthcare, and public services. Democrats don't complain about that as much, but they also don't challenge it. Of course, it's true that immigrant children and immigrant elders rely on tax-funded public services like schools and Medi-Cal and Medicare. But that is more true of the native-born children and elderly people, which we will all be one day, because there are restrictions on eligibility for some of these services based on immigration status. But if working age, working class people support everyone else in society, then the immigrant part of the working class takes on more, not less of this burden. Because despite the politicians focus on immigrant children, most immigrants are working age adults especially the great majority of immigrants who are coming not to flee wars, wars which, by the way, are often fueled by U.S. wars for oil or other geopolitical chess games, but who instead are fleeing the ruining of their local economies by U.S. and other international corporations and by unfair trade deals like NAFTA. So the typical migrant from Mexico or Central America is raised in their home country. So the home country bears the cost of raising and educating them. They then risk their lives to feed their families in crossing the militarized border to come and find work. The young, the old, and the sick mostly can't make that journey. And this means that these US immigrant populations have a higher percentage of working age people producing wealth, paying taxes, and having profits exploited out of them by capitalists like the rest of us. They are mostly too old for school and too young for very much medical expense. The irony of anti-immigrant politics today is that as the US baby boom generation 
continues to retire and age, Social Security faces a declining surplus because there are fewer young workers paying into the system compared to the number of retirees. And sometimes it is rightly pointed out that opening the borders to immigrants could help solve this problem. But in fact, immigrants are already doing that. When undocumented immigrants work under a fake social security number, they pay into the social security system. And because that money can't be tied back to a real number, Social Security puts it into an account called the Earning Suspense Fund. Social Security received $13 billion in the Earning Suspense Fund in 2013, money that offsets the declining surplus. Another way undocumented workers voluntarily contribute taxes and fund services that they are not themselves eligible to receive is through individual tax identification numbers or ITINs. So those without social security numbers can get an ITIN from the IRS and that allows them to prove residency. It also allows them to pay taxes, which can help them make a case for legalization later on. Between 2012 and 2015, between 4.4 and 4.6 million people filed ITINs each year. In 2015, ITIN filers paid a total of $23.6 billion in taxes. Undocumented people pay sales and local taxes as well. But no doubt, by far the largest contribution to supporting other people by immigrant workers, including undocumented workers, is through the profits employers make off their labor. And since the undocumented can be more than just fired by their boss, they can also be turned over for deportation, their ability to demand better pay is limited by terror, making them more exploitable. All of this makes a mockery of the idea that, the common sense idea that allowing immigrants in the country is expensive. Politicians and the media present the world on the assumption that ordinary people are first and foremost consumers and that politicians and capitalists take care of us by providing jobs and providing programs, but that's ridiculous. It's we, the workers who produce. It is us without whom society could not run, could not exist. When we keep that in mind, we see that calling immigrant workers parasites is a crazy upside down view of the world. But won't legalizing immigrants cause the competition for jobs and drive down wages? Well, to answer that, we have to remember that capitalism has already created a global market, including a global labor market. Poverty wages in poor countries already inflate the profits of U.S. corporations like Apple, Nike, GM, and thousands of others. And this already drives wages down inside the rich countries. As every time there's a manufacturing strike here, it's met with the threat of moving production overseas. Even Bernie Sanders, who to his credit, supports more progressive immigration policies than most senators, has said that open borders is, in his words, a, quote, Koch brothers scheme. But what would really happen 
to the labor market if we had open borders. For example, if workers were free to live and work on either side of the border in Southern California, well, obviously many more Tijuanans would cross the border to compete for high, higher paying jobs in San Diego. While this could temporarily drive down wages in San Diego, it would also mean that Tijuana businesses could no longer find enough workers. These businesses would have to start paying enough to compete in the San Diego labor market. And this would sooner or later eliminate the wage gap between San Diego and Tijuana, that very same wage gap between rich and poorer countries that currently holds down wages in the rich countries. When capitalists gained the freedom to move their companies across borders, they used that freedom to increase their exploitation of labor by playing different national groups of workers against each other. But when workers gain the freedom to live and work across borders, we shut that down. And this isn't just a theory. It already happened with the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, or IRCA, because what IRCA did was provide an amnesty for 2 million undocumented workers who took the short six month path to citizenship under that law. It was passed under Reagan, by the way. No longer fearing deportation, these 2 million workers lost some of their fear of organizing. And this led to the growth of SEIU in the following years through the Justice for Janitors organizing campaign in Los Angeles and other cities. The rest of the labor movement took notice and soon several unions, including the hotel workers, began focusing on immigrant workers. Immigrants became the main area of growth in a union movement that was shrinking overall. And today in the private sector, Immigrants, documented and undocumented together, have a 10% unionization rate, higher than the 6% overall private sector average. In that sense, immigrant workers are pulling up unionization standards. The Center for American Progress did a study in 2010 on the economic effects of legalization by looking at what happened to economic growth, wages levels, and unemployment for all workers due to IRCA, that 1986 amnesty. And the results are the opposite of what the mainstream political discussion tells us will happen with greater freedom for immigrants. Based on IRCA, they made three predictions based on different immigration reform scenarios. First, they said, what would happen if we legalized all of the 11 million undocumented? And they found, that this would cause the economy to grow almost 1% of economic growth every year, leading to 1.5 trillion extra over 10 years. Free to unionize and make demands without the threat of deportation, wages would grow for legalized immigrants and would also raise the wage floor and increase wages for native-born workers too. The second scenario was a guest worker program that would allow immigrants to work legally, but not allow them to stay in the country when their job ended. They projected this would create only half as much economic growth and because immigrant workers would not actually have the freedom to demand more without being, the fear of being kicked out of the country, it would actually cause wages to decline for both immigrant and native born. 
The third scenario was mass deportation of all undocumented workers, which would cause a huge, almost 2% annual decline in economic growth. It would also cause massive unemployment and an overall decline of wages for workers as a whole. But it would cause a rise in wages for some workers who would benefit from a labor shortage in their specific industry. Politicians and the media present us as citizens of our country competing against other countries. But capitalism has created a world economy with a worldwide ruling class and a worldwide working class. When we remember this, we understand that workers of all countries have more in common with each other than with our own rulers. And that's what, what's good for workers anywhere is usually good for workers everywhere. Which brings me to my last point. The US is a country built on enslaved labor and immigrant labor. We've talked before about how enslaved workers, general strike during the Civil War, was actually the first nationwide labor action. How the labor movement has too often excluded black labor, but has had its greatest successes through the anti-racist inclusion in the movement championed by Marxists and others, and how black labor has been a militant spark plug leading the labor movement as a whole. And roughly these same dynamics apply to immigrant labor. Chinese, Latino, and Haitian immigrant workers have all faced exclusion at different times by the labor movement. But the first planned national strike in the US was the 1886 eight-hour day strike on May 1st, which inspired International Workers' Day. That strike was led by immigrants, German immigrant anarchists and Marxists in the Chicago Labor Union. They and others nationally in the Knights of Labor began organizing whole factories into racially inclusive industry-wide unions instead of the increasingly powerless and racially exclusive craft unions that only organized a minority of workers doing one type of job. Then the first lasting mass foothold for these new style of inclusive industry-wide unions began with the 1909 uprising of the 20,000. 20,000 mostly young Jewish and Eastern European immigrant women in the New York textile industry. And it also included black women, unlike most unions at the time. And it also led to International Women's Day. Mexican immigrants led and or participated in the most important Western states unionization struggles of labor's high point, the 1930s. Filipino and Mexican workers organized the United Farm Workers in the 1960s and 70s, the most popular and widely supported labor movement of the time. The justice for janitors and related struggles of the 1990s not only provided hope during bad times for unions, they led in 2000 to the AFL-CIO reversing its historic opposition to immigration. And on May 1st, 2006, in a struggle very close to my heart and close to Bob's, I know as well, since we as socialists helped to organize it, it's one of the high points of my life, I will say, several million immigrant workers struck for one day in a successful attempt to force Congress to withdraw the anti-immigrant Sensenbrenner law. And that 
strike was the first general strike in the U.S. since the Oakland general strike of 1946. Not only did the 1886 May 1st general strike lead to the first eight-hour day laws and contracts, but the 1934 general strikes in San Francisco, Toledo, and Minneapolis forced the passage of the Social Security Act. So when in 2006, immigrant workers were using the general strike, they were bringing back a key and powerful weapon that the workers' movement had too long abandoned, the general strike. And in a way, it was finally used again with the 2018 statewide teachers' wildcat strikes. To summarize, all workers, especially immigrant workers, create more wealth than we consume, supporting both our own class and the ruling class. Just as freedom of trade to move across borders benefits corporations, freedom of movement and open borders for workers benefits our class collectively. And immigrants, because of how exploited they are, how they are forced to stick together in a foreign land, thus making it more natural for them to organize, and sometimes because of their connections to left-wing organization and politics from their home countries, immigrant workers have been and are always one of the advanced guard sections of our US labor movement. I'll stop there and turn it over to Jim. Thank you, Avery. That was that was really great. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, sounds good. That was good, Avery. Uh, so yeah, my name's uh, Jim Boyle. Um, I'm a socialist and a worker, and my specific relationship to uh, the immigration topic. Uh, refers to my many years working in the food processing industry, both here in San Diego, as well as in the state of Alaska. Um, so I want to start out by just underlying what Avery said earlier, that the U.S. was built on immigrant and enslaved labor. Immigrants work in the least desirable jobs in the U.S., always have like the food processing industry. Immigrants are overwhelming majorities in these workplaces. Immigrant majority workplaces have always led the struggle in the US. One of the biggest reasons for this is because of the relative absence of racism amongst immigrants. Bosses know that immigrant majority workplaces are more difficult to control politically so they develop strategies to pit the workers against each other. I worked in the food processing industry from 1984 to 2017. I started out working on cleanup crew, then I worked in QC, but mostly I have worked as an industrial mechanic. I'm gonna talk about two places that I worked during that period that highlight the dynamics that are specific to immigrant labor in the US. Um, I worked at the San Diego-based Suja juice plant from 2015 to 2017, during which time it was the 13th fastest growing company in the United States and number one in food and beverage category. Suja was twice named by Forbes magazine as one of the most promising small companies in the U.S., which led to Coca-Cola purchasing a 30% ownership stake in Suja, which included financing a new production facility in Oceanside. 
Uh, Suja was the first non-union company, though, that I'd ever worked for, and it shocked me. The working conditions of this darling of Wall Street were out of the 19th century. This was always a temporary solution, Suja, supposedly, as management said, due to the continual expansion of the production capacity, which meant the machines were continually arriving at the plant to be integrated in the, into the production process before there was even time for the most basic principles of electrical safety, like not having high voltage power cables snaked along the production floor between machine legs and through water puddles. Much of the equipment at Suja was dilapidated. Suja thought they were smart by saving money on equipment that workers were told to bear with because it was just for a little while. But one of those machines, the bundler that was purchased specifically for the Walmart contract caused two severe hand injuries after it was hurried online, one of which caused the loss of four fingers. Another dilapidated machine, the labeler that uses a hot glue process under high pressure caused a disfigurement of a maintenance worker's face. Suja's warehouse where production materials were continually unloaded from vans onto high racks to be later forklifted over to the production area could also be described as 19th century as believe it or not, there was no lighting. A working warehouse, 24 hour a day operation, no lighting. Also 19th century, it was typical to work seven days a week at Suja with shifts ranging from week to week uh, between eight to 10 to 12 hours. That's right here in, right here in San Diego. The Suja, uh, excuse me, the Suja uh, workforce was over 90% immigrant and um, people of color, Southeast Asians, Koreans, Filipinos, Mexicanos, Central Americanos, Iraqis, Somalian, and black workers. Despite the horrendous working conditions, there was a tremendous spirit of solidarity amongst the workers that cut across racial lines. Suja workers took care of each other. They greeted each other and took leave of each other with feeling. They shared foods and they hung out in the parking lot after shifts were over. There were a lot of different languages spoken at Suja and workers worked together to understand each other. This is, this is everything. Language is one of the biggest socioeconomic barriers to immigrants in the US. English only requirements are used to keep them at the worst jobs. Nativist workers, the demand that their fellow workers speak English directly promote workplace segregation. From my very first day in Suja, I saw how black workers were the most comfortable with confronting management. By confronting management, I mean raising issues and demands and making arguments with conviction to back them up. This is critical to the possibilities of worker power. The authority of management must be confronted for workers to advance. It does no good to complain in private. And yet I've seen over and over again across several different workplaces in two different states, how angry workers with legitimate grievances crumble to dust in the presence of management as if under a spell. Um, we'll talk about divide and conquer techniques. Capitalism must keep workers apart to control them. Suja controlled its workers by pitting all three shifts against each other for, for production totals. 
This broke up worker solidarity and introduced rivalry-based culture. Remarkably, Suja continues in, in this policy even after the various shifts started to sabotage each other. Suja used the shift leads to drive the workers. The shift leads were kept under constant threat to produce and quickly became tyrants that drew the ire of the workers onto themselves. Suja hired entirely from within for these positions. So immigrants and people of color that got advanced at Suja into management did the dirty work of white upper management while insulating it at the same time from direct responsibility. Competition between shifts introduced competition between races as the different shifts tended to segregate depending on the ethnicity of the lead. This led to the creation of majority and minority divisions and favoritism within ships. In my department, there were tensions between Filipinos who were in the majority and occupied most of the lead positions and black workers. In bottling, there were tensions between the Spanish speaking majority and English speakers of different races. In high pressure processing, there were tensions between Southeast Asians and Latinx workers. Despite the tensions that management introduced into the workforce at Suja, the spirit of worker solidarity somehow survived because of the low levels of racism amongst immigrants and people of color. This is a powerful thing in an industrial setting where worker cooperation, communication and coordination leads to shared feelings of collective power. One sad exception to this was the anti-Islamicism against Iraqi and Somalian workers. The Somalian workers in particular were the only workers at Suja that did not integrate socially with the other workers. The Somalians were a large group at Suja for one period, but they received not a single promotion. The lack of promotions is really obvious at a workplace like Suja, where there's a lot of worker turnover. Management also made jokes that combined racism and anti-Islamicism at the expense of the Somalians. A few workers made jokes about pork and there was hesitance among Somalians about sharing food at worker parties because of a fear of being tricked into eating pork. The Somalians came to Suja as a group and they left as a group to move to Minnesota where the largest and fastest growing community, community of Somalian immigrants in the United States is located. Well-known DSA politician and member of the squad, Ilhan Omar is a Somalian immigrant from Minnesota. Immigrants like the, like the Somalians have always had to stick together to survive in the US. Immigrants have a deeper appreciation for the value of solidarity than more quote unquote Americanized workers. This is key. This is why immigrants have always led the worker struggle in the US. There were many occasions when individual workers took stands at Suja under the horrible working conditions. Unfortunately, individual acts of militancy around individual demands don't work. And the most militant workers at Suja tended to get more and more frustrated until they were either fired or quit. In turn, unable to retain labor, Suja turned more and more to temporary labor. Temporary labor created yet another barrier between workers. When Suja moved to the Oceanside plant that Coca-Cola purchased, 
Workers and managements were separated into building one and building two. There was a considerable physical distance between the two buildings, which added yet another buffer between those that were not white and worked under horrible conditions in production and those that were white and had private bathrooms and showers in their offices and brought their dogs to work. The majority of the workers at Suja were young men that made friends quickly and easily across racial lines, which created a really awesome spirit of solidarity. But the individualism that's also typical of young men held them back from organizing that spirit into collective action. The relative lack of women workers at Suja, at Suja was a crucial factor in limiting the potential. The lack of older workers as well. Okay, so now I wanna go on and talk about um, Alaska where I worked in the salmon industry for, um, for geez, 30 years. Um, but first I wanna start by talking about the history of the seasonal salmon harvest in Alaska. Um, the summer salmon run in Alaska has been harvested and processed by US companies since Alaska was purchased from Russia and became a territory in 1867. The earliest companies to come to Alaska were colonial in their methods of harvesting the salmon and did such violence to the future of the resource that the federal government had to step in in 1889 to keep them from driving the species into extinction. The native population in Alaska was small, so Chinese labor was imported into Alaska as it was throughout the West in the period of US territorial expansion. The federal government didn't care about Chinese labor as much as they did about the salmon run. So workers were mercilessly exploited by the salmon packers and the contractors that ran the mafia type operation that smuggled them, I'm sorry, that supplied them to the camp, to the salmon packers. I have to talk about the contracting system. The Chinese legal status as immigrants denied them freedom of movement and freedom of employment. The contractors were businesses that trafficked Chinese labor like a commodity, like sugar or salt. The contractors moved them physically across the ocean and legally through customs. The contractors paid the wages and the contractors got the wages right back in their stores, company type stores, where they sold Chinese labor, everything they needed to work and survive, as well as fueling addictions for alienated workers far from home. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 created barriers to the cheap flow of Chinese labor. So contractors turned to Japanese labor and then to Filipino labor to meet the demands of the canneries. In the 1930s era of mass unionization, unions came to replace the hated contractors as the supplier of immigrant labor to Alaska. The unions self-organized by immigrant workers themselves were a giant step forward in terms of wages and living conditions, but they were still segregated by race. So there was a union for Chinese labor, another for Filipino labor, and another for Japanese labor which competed against each other instead of working together for the common benefit against the cannery bosses. Virgil Dunn Youngen was the president of the first Filipino-led union in the United States, the Cannery Workers and Farm Labor Union, which was established in Seattle in 1933. 
Virgil had started out as a worker in the canneries and he reported to Congress in 1934 on the illegal drug and sex trafficking and gambling operations that the contractors combined with their perfectly legal labor traffic. Dunyungen, along with Union Secretary Aurelio Simon, paid with their lives for their unionism as they were murdered in 1936 by the nephew of one of the main labor contractors they'd put out of business. In 1937, the Cannery Workers and Farm Labor Union went from the conservative AFL to the more militant CIO, where it became Local 7. Japanese internment during World War II consolidated the dominance of Filipino labor in Alaska, and Local 7 was considered the most militant Filipino union in the country with deep and abiding ties to the larger Filipino community in Seattle. Union meetings were remarkable for the large attendance and the engagement of the workers allowed the most militant leaders of union of, excuse me, affiliations again from communist controlled food, tobacco and agricultural union that was expelled from the CIO to the ILWU, the International Longshoremen Warehouse Union, and became Local 37. In 1952, Local 37 fought a spirited battle in support of Ernesto Mangonwang. I said that really bad, I'm sorry. Mangonwang, a business agent at the union who was deported as a communist under the McCarran Security Act of 1950. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where Mangoan won a landmark case that established residency rights for generations of Filipinos that moved to the United States prior to its independence in 1946. The decline of unionism in the US after the McCarthy era allowed for the reassertion of mafia elements in Local 37 and the reestablishment of a new version of the old contractor system with gambling, drug, and prostitution operations running cannery bunkhouse to siphon off workers' money. This brings us to the story uh, of Silme Domingo and Jean Viernes, my personal heroes. Domingo and Viernes began working summers in Alaska as teens in the late 1960s alongside their fathers. But unlike their fathers and earlier generations of Filipino workers, they were able to go to college in an era when higher ed was opening up for the first time in terms of racial inclusion and student political involvement was flourishing. In the early 70s, Domingo and Viernes went back to Alaska, this time undercover as University of Washington fit, uh, fishery students on a scientific research project. This ruse allowed them to go from cannery to cannery and compile extensive documentation on a racial caste system that had been in place since the Civil War era with Filipino ma uh, majorities segregated into separate but unequal work areas, mess halls and bunkhouses. They used this research to file three class action lawsuits in federal court against the canneries for discriminatory employment and housing, two of which won, bringing millions in damages for the fellow workers and effectively bringing the 100 year history of segregation in Alaska canneries to an end. After this amazing victory over the canneries, Domingo and Viernes moved to take back 
local 37 from the mafia running the gambling operations. They took counsel with older generations of local seven and 37 unionists. The old unionists passed them the traditions of the old unionism that fought and prevailed over the contractor system of labor trafficking. In 1977, they started the rank and file reform movement in local 37. And by 1980, they had swept into key positions in leadership. Diernes and Domingo ambitiously combined this reform work within the union with an outward expansion of the union's work into internationalism. Seeped as they were in immigrant history and radical union history alike, they understood that in its maximum potential, Local 37 could be used as a bridge to build labor power that crossed borders. Viernes went to the Filipinos as soon as he got into leadership. I'm sorry, went to the Philippines as soon as he got into leadership. Met with labor leaders of the KMU May 1st movement and spoke at a rally in front of thousands with greetings from the ILWU, which at that time was still very famous for its militancy. This was in an era when Fernando Marcos was dictator and working conditions in the Philippines had declined dramatically. Viernes took a message back to the ILWU that he read out loud at the annual convention in Hawaii shortly afterwards from KMU leader Felix Berto Olalia, inviting the union to send a delegation to the Philippines to, invest, to investigate the severity of the situation under the Marcos dictatorship. Viernes got the resolution through against considerable opposition, news of which was received very badly by Marcos when it reached the dictator's attention. As soon as Viernes got back from Hawaii to Seattle, he got a visit from Tony Dictato, who was the leader of the Tulesian gang that owned the rights to the gambling operation. He gave Viernes a long list of his associates' names and where he wanted them placed in canneries across the state of Alaska for the upcoming salmon season. Viernes, though, had run for the position of dispatcher with that exact moment in mind, and he wielded the power of his office to checkmate the Tulesians out of business. This sat about as well with the president of the local 37, who was Anthony Baruso, as the ILW resolution had sat with Marcos. Baruso was a Marcos man. His job as a Marcos man was to sell the rights to the gambling operations, and he already had reason to hate Domingo and Viernes even before they came for his union for their prior work ending segregation in the canneries. Domingo and Viernes were assassinated by the Tulesian gang members in June 1st, 1981. One of the guns used was later found to be registered to Baruso the union president, but the hit was ordered by Marcos himself, as was proven in US courts, which awarded a $15 million settlement to the families of the assassinated union leaders. The first such time in the US that a foreign head of state had ever been prosecuted in the court system. As a testament to the strength of the rank and file movement that Domingo and Viernes built, it continued to get victories even after their death as Domingo's widow, Terry Mast, David uh, Della, 
and others pushed on with incredible resolve despite the dangers, and they succeeded in securing total control of Union 37 and ending the gambling operations that had robbed workers of their wages for so long in Alaska. I started working in Alaska in 1984 in Cordova, and I saw the very end of the era of segregation. There were still gambling operations being run in the what was being referred to as the white bunkhouse. That's what management called it, but which was still widely referred to as a Filipino bunkhouse from the legal segregation, segregation days. The white bunkhouse was only partially desegregated as the majority Filipino workplace was still separated on their own floor from the majority of the workplace made up of white native and Mexican workers. Down in the processing plant, Filipinos worked in different departments than the rest of the workers, the worst departments, the fish house where the fish are butchered in the cannery. The bathrooms for the Filipino workers in the plant could only be described as inhuman due to the lack of adequate water pressure. The Filipino workers were the only ones that used the bathroom, that bathroom, because the Tulesian gang would not let them go back to the bunkhouse. The Tulesian gang also pushed the Filipino workers to work faster by moving a couple of very fast workers up and down the line, setting the pace. After the workday was over, the gambling operations were ruthless. The gang got 5% of every dollar that hit the table. Workers that didn't gamble understood that their employment would be reconsidered, and there were workers there that worked all season just to pay off gambling debts. These horrors were gone within a couple of years as the rank and file movement in Local 37 cemented their control of the union. The Mexican workers that began to pour into the industry in the late 80s saw greatly improved working and living conditions that went along with the desegregation of work departments, bunkhouses, and eating facilities. Their hard-earned dollars went home with them after the season was over instead of to the contractors or to the mob. The mostly white college students from Washington and Oregon that poured into canneries in this period as one of those were integrated throughout the plant, including the worst jobs, and there was a corresponding greater access for Mexicanos and Filipinos and natives to higher paid machinists and quality control positions, although white workers were still disproportionately favored. The desegregation was more complete in the mess hall and after work in the bunkhouses where uh, Filipinos, Mexicanos, natives and whites, many of whom had never lived with anyone outside their own race, lived together on an equal social footing and had huge parties that were fucking great because no one was excluded. And there was romance too with considerable intermarrying amongst the younger workers that further blurred the racial divisions. Considering that the United States of America is the second most segregated nation in the world, the social integration that was achieved in Alaskan canneries in this era after a 50 year struggle led by ILWU uh, local 37 can only be considered a tremendous achievement. And unfortunately, this achievement came in an era when the U.S. was turning sharply to the right and union movement was suffering a massive downturn. Local 37 shrank dramatically in influence and unorganized workers that were treated to the stories about the days of segregation and took pictures of the shuttered Filipino-only bunkhouses also suffered decades of wage and benefit stagnation. College students stopped coming to Alaska around 2000 as the spiraling cost of school rendered the offset from grueling summer labor more and more negligible. 
This did open the door for Mexicano and Central Americano workers to advance into the better paying jobs. Uh, Mexicano and Filipino women in particular benefited in the plant I worked in as they took majority positions in the quality control department and also moved into positions in the office. By around 2010, this dynamic had resulted in the fact that there were very few English speakers in Alaska canneries and an overwhelming majority of non-English speaking uh, Mexicano and Central Americano workers. White workers like myself that had stayed on and made a career in Alaska in this immigrant majority industry tended to speak Spanish. This led directly to the ending of the unwritten but endlessly repeated English only requirement for eligibility into IAM unionized machinist work in Ketchikan in 2010. A requirement that had barred the vast majority of immigrants of all races in the post segregation era. English only is also a requirement that is used all over the place but perhaps most ruthlessly in the US is a substitute for more overt forms of racism. The integration of non-English speaking workers into the International Association of Machinists Machinist Crew led to the development of pro-union sentiment amongst the rest of the Spanish speaking workers. These same Spanish speaking workers were mostly agricultural workers from Mexico, Central America, and the US Southwest that are themselves the heirs to rural traditions of resistance that cross borders, multiple borders. The IAM, the Machinist Union, for their part, perhaps aware of the traditions of Local 37, which was originally a cannery and agricultural union, and certainly aware that the Spanish speakers that worked in canneries in Alaska also worked harvest seasons throughout the Southwest, initiated a unionization drive in Ketchikan in 2013 to bring every single worker in the plant into the machinist union. This was totally cool because it signified a movement from a craft-based union, like Avery talked about earlier, to an industrial type union. And the, and the IAM was able to further conceptualize uh, following a successful unionization drive in Ketchikan with further unionization efforts in Stockton, where there was a considerable group of AGS workers that did seasonal labor after they left Alaska. Unfortunately, the unionization drive failed because of the treachery of AGS, the Canadian company that owned the Canadian plant, and the cowardice of supposedly liberal machinists in the union that stayed neutral, even as the English only cabal in the union plotted openly with management in the mess hall. Yeah, they're all white workers. It is certainly worth noting that in order to kill the movement, AGS on their own accord gave in to the two principal demands that workers hope to attain from unionization the end of a two-tier pay system, which brought all workers up to the higher pay scale, and the end of the airplane policy that forced workers to pay for their return ticket home with only a single day advance notice. We all know 
how expensive that is trying to buy. Well, maybe we don't know. I don't think I've ever bought one, but it's, it's expensive. Um, and they also got, there was a third thing they got that they hadn't even asked for. A second cook. So there was uh, Mexican and other types of ethnic food in the mess hall, along with the standard American fare. Intimidation and the subtle but persistent threat of violence directed at the three Stockton-based Spanish speakers that I previously mentioned that were already mechanics in the union, machinists in the union, was another huge factor in the defeat. These three, these guys is almost kind of along the lines of uh, breaking uh, along the lines of Jackie Robinson in certain respects, what they did um, by coming into the union as Spanish speakers. Um, and so these guys were uh, subject to intimidation and this intimidation took the creepy form of being stared at by management during meals across the mess hall and being stared at by management. They walked by them when they were working down at the plant. And that's all I've got, um, but uh, I'll go ahead and turn it over to the rest of the group now. Thanks, Jim. Um, so usually at this time, we kind of open it up to a discussion. Um, I don't know if anyone had any, um, any uh, discussion points to open up to the table, but, um, but yeah, thanks Avery and Jim for sharing today. Um, Jim, Avery, uh, are there any kind of funneled points that you wanted to see uh, or any comments from anyone else potentially? I didn't have anything. I'm just interested in any questions or thoughts that people have or if people have their own experiences. 